All right, people, the book of Job. Now, as I've said a few times up to this point, I am really excited and also intimidated by this series on this book. Um, on the one hand, Job is one of the most beautiful and profound books of the Bible. And on top of that, talking about someone named Job gives me plenty of great opportunities to quote Arrested Development, which is one of the greatest TV series of all time. On the other hand, at least half of you have no idea what Arrested Development is. And Job is one of the absolute most difficult books in the Bible. So um, as I've delved into and wrestled with this book the past few weeks, more than once I've thought I've made a huge mistake. But when I have felt this intimidated in the past, uh, it usually ends up being a great series. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, let's get into it. It's really hard to know where to start with this thing. Um, there is so much that we could talk about. There's so much we need to talk about um, that I feel like I'm leaving stuff out. I, I'm definitely going to leave stuff out and even stuff I, I want to include. I feel like I'm forgetting or leaving out because there's just so much. But I also know, you know, we don't have hours um, every week for weeks on end to delve into this. So I'm doing my best to try to whittle it all down into the essentials that are easily consumed. So maybe the most important thing to say off the top is there's really no wide consensus on this book um, in Christian or Jewish circles. It is really hard to translate uh, and interpret. There are words used in Job that are extremely rare in the rest of the Bible. There are words that are used in Job that are only used in Job and nowhere else in the rest of the Bible, which sometimes makes it really hard to figure out what they mean. On top of that, there are several very ambiguous phrases, which means um, well, often we can and we know what the words mean, but the way that the sentence is phrased, it could be translated. It could legitimately be translated in, in a few different ways, and sometimes they mean wildly different things, um, which means that there's lots of options about this book. It's confounded the best of the best scholars throughout time. Um, and as I said, <laughs> the, the nature of the things that make it difficult means that there are just several ways that this book can be understood and interpreted. And we don't have time to cover all of those. We don't have time to cover all the possible options. So I picked one particular strategy for understanding this book. It doesn't mean that this is the one and only way to interpret it. As I said, there are several. None of them are perfect. All of them include some degree of, of speculation and um, making educated guesses. Um, but I think some strategies and interpretations are, are more consistent and coherent than others. All this to say, if throughout this series you find yourself disagreeing with anything I or anyone in the series says, try not to take offense to it. And realize you're in good company. Disagreement is essentially the most agreed upon aspect of this book throughout time. <laughs> oh, man, it's going to be fun. So the story of Job is actually pretty well known in, in popular culture and popular thought. Um, if, I, if I said um, to you, so-and-so is suffering like Job, chances are you would know what I'm talking about. You'd think that I'm describing someone who suffers with an incredible amount of patience and with an unshaken faith, right? That's the popular understanding of this story. 
Uh, the first talk I ever gave ever was on the book of Job. Uh, back in 2003, I was a junior in high school and <laughs> thinking about it now, I have no idea why my youth pastor thought that this would be a good idea for, for me to teach on this incredibly complicated book. Uh, the first time I'm ever trying to teach anything. Um, <laughs> maybe he knew, yeah, maybe he knew the best way to learn is by falling on your face. The thing is, I was 16. And uh, so the trick was on him because at 16, at least for me, you're, you're way more likely to think that you're absolutely crushing it than realize you're falling on your face. So I thought I did an incredible job. And I taught my youth group one Sunday morning that based on the book of Job, that we need to be patient when we suffer and, because ultimately God is going to bless us with twice as much as we had before if we suffer faithfully and never lose trust in God throughout our pain, just like Job did. <laughs> um, I thought at the time, Job is a story about how when we suffer, God wants us to remember that there's always money in the banana stand. And that if we are just faithful to him, if we faithfully trust him throughout our pain and suffering, he'll reward us. That seems reasonable, right? The problem is, that's not what the book of Job is actually about. Well, okay, so it's what the fable of Job is about. Let me explain. Uh, there's actually two parts of the book of Job. There's the fable of Job, which is chapters one and two, and then the last 10 verses of chapter 42. So the bookends of the book, that's one part, the fable of Job. And then there's the epic poem of Job, which is the rest of the book, chapters three through the first half of chapter 42. You've probably never heard that before. <laughs> the fable of Job is one of the oldest stories that we have any record of. Um, there's a couple different versions that we know of. Each is, you know, varies to the culture that it was found in, but there's a Sumerian version that's estimated to be from around 2000 BC. Um, there's an Egyptian version that's slightly later than that. Uh, both of these versions are anywhere from 1300 to 1700 years older than the version that we have in our Bible, the, than the book of Job. Um, so it's, it was a ancient fable that was well known throughout multiple different cultures. Um, it's an ancient simplistic story about the relationship between God and humans and suffering and God rewarding those who put up with suffering caused by the bets he makes with his angels. And we'll get into that. Uh, the fable is the part that most people know or are familiar with, like I alluded to at the beginning, patience and faithfulness in the midst of suffering. But again, that's not actually what the story is about. That's what the fable is about. But again, the fable is like a fraction of the book, just the first two chapters and the very last 10 verses. The book of Job that we have today is the result of someone taking that fable and creating basically a, a concept album out of it. For those of you who don't know what a concept album is, it's when a band or, or musical artist creates an entire album of songs uh, that revolve around a single theme or that tell a cohesive story. Each song is a different view or shift on the theme or, or a chapter of the story. The book of Job is like a, a concept album based on the fable of Job, but with poetry instead of music. Honestly, you can, you can think of the book of Job as being a lot like Hamilton, the musical. The writer of Hamilton took this really well-known story rooted in history 
and then very creatively and artistically expanded on it by inserting a bunch of rap into it. With Job, the inspired author takes a very well-known simplistic fable that very well could be rooted in history. It's completely possible that, that that fable was based on an actual person experiencing those actual terrible things that happened to him a long time ago. But someone took this old simplistic story about God and humans and suffering, and then they flip it on its head by adding this epic poem, which is kind of like rap, so still kind of like Hamilton. They add this epic poem right into the middle of the fable. And it results in a far more complex, a far less simplistic, and a far more realistic reflection of what we actually experience when we suffer. Unlike the fable or the popular understanding of Job, um, Job the epic poem, Job in the epic poem does not suffer patiently. He does not suffer unquestioningly. He asks tons of questions. He makes a lot of demands, especially of God. He grapples and struggles with what's happened to him, often bordering on, if not teetering over into blasphemy. The Job of the epic poem is, is brutally honest with himself and his friends and most importantly with God. He is far more to me <laughs> relatable and real than the Job that we find in the fable. Um, so because the epic poem is in many ways a reaction against the fable or like an expansion of the fable, understanding these two parts of the book are essential in uncovering its message, which we'll get into um, in a later week. But tonight, we're going to go through just the first two chapters of the, the book that encapsulate the majority of the fable of Job, which sets up the epic poem. I'm going to read uh, these first two chapters um, out loud together with you. Uh, but throughout this series, I encourage you to read through the, the book of Job on your own. We're not going to have time to read through all of it because the poem sections are really long, uh, but they're amazing. Uh, they're beautiful. They're compelling. Though this book is complicated, it's still a beautiful piece of work to experience. Um, I highly recommend the translation for, or <laughs> the message translation. Um, it makes it much more approachable and more so than some other translations. Uh, Eugene Peterson really cares about poetry. Um, and so he's a lot better uh, than some versions at capturing and maintaining the beauty of the original structures and rhymes of Hebrew into English, which is really hard to do with when you're taking any language of poetry and converting it into another language, maintaining the poetry is almost impossible. So if you if when you read this, read the message version is my recommendation, but tackle this text and read it as we go through it during the week. Okay, so we're going to trace through really quickly the first two chapters of Job, starting at verse one of chapter one, which is where you should start when you're reading things from the beginning. Job was a man who lived in Uts, which is spelled U-Z, which is very strange. He was honest inside and out, a man of his word who was totally devoted to God and hated evil with a passion. He had seven sons and three daughters. He was also very wealthy, 7,000 heads of sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a huge staff of servants, the most influential man in all the East. His sons used to take turns hosting parties in their homes, always inviting their three sisters to join them in their merrymaking. 
When the parties were over, Job would end up, uh, Job would get up early in the morning and sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his children, thinking maybe one of them sinned by defying God inwardly. Job made a habit of this sacrificial atonement just in case they sinned. Okay, stop here. So we're introduced to this guy named Job, who is basically presented to be blameless. Like this guy lives the perfect life. He doesn't do anything wrong. He has incredible integrity. He has a huge family, which is usually a sign of someone who in this ancient culture's thought, someone who lives right is blessed with a large family. He has seven sons and three daughters, which is huge. And on top of that, he's extremely wealthy. I mean, you heard about all those animals. That's what currency was then. So this guy is the biggest deal in the land and um, probably controls a huge amount of the culture and trade around him. But he is essentially good. He's so good that every time his kids throw a party, he gets up the next day and makes a sacrifice for each of his kids just in case they might have sinned. That's how much this guy cares about following God's law and following um, what God wants for him. He's not Hebrew, which is interesting. Uh, And we're not given any indication in the beginning or really throughout this book of when this is taking place. Because those details aren't important. (laughs) That's not the point. The point is, here's this guy, this everyday guy who loves God and follows him so much so that he is blessed beyond comprehension. Picking back up in verse six. One day when the angels came to report to God, Satan, who was the designated accuser, came along with them. God singled out Satan and said, what have you been up to? Satan answered, going here and there, checking things out on earth. Okay, pause. You're probably wondering what on earth is going on. We were just talking about Job and how rich he is. And then all of a sudden we're like up in heaven. Yeah, it's weird. We're up in heaven and we see the scene of basically like God holding a royal court. So God is the king. He's sitting on the throne and his advisors are all around him, various angels. And one of them is Satan. Now, in Hebrew, what is said there is uh, one of them is Hasatan which means the accuser or the impeter or the adversary. It's not a name, it's a title. And it's where we get the name Satan from, but it's in this story, it's probably not meant to be that Satan. Um, now, this is already where there's disagreement in this story. Some people say that this absolutely is supposed to be Satan, others don't. There's a number of reasons why I don't think it's meant to be that character. Um, which we don't have time to go into fully, but a few reasons are, it seems like this is one of God's agents. He's one of the angels or something. He's a part of God's royal court who can't do anything without God's permission, but is there to advise God on things, which is why God asks him questions. Uh, Additionally, there are other places in the Bible where the Old Testament, specifically where an angel of God is described as um, being sent by God to be a Satan, an impeder, an adversary, um, two people. So the, the idea being portrayed here, I think, is a person that was really a common member of a royal court, a person who spies on the subjects of the kingdom. So in this case, humans on earth for the king, who in this story is God, and then reports back to the king about who is being faithful to him. All this to say, don't get too hung up on this. 
the point is, this is someone who works on God's behalf um, for him. To make this distinction, I'm going to be reading it. Many translations just say Satan. I'm going to be reading it as it is in the Hebrew, Hasatan, to help differentiate. Okay? Picking back up in verse 8. God said to Hasatan, Have you noticed my friend Job? There's no one quite like him, honest and true to his word, totally devoted to God and hating evil. Hasatan retorted, So do you think Job does all of that out of the sheer goodness of his heart? Why, no one has ever had it so good. You pamper him like a pet. You make sure nothing bad ever happens to him or his family or his possessions. You bless everything he does. He can't lose. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away everything that is his? He'd curse you right to your face. That's what. So, pause for a second. God is holding royal court and he turns to this, like one of his spies and he starts bragging to him. He's like, have you seen Job? There's a reason why you never report to me about him because he's perfectly faithful to me. This guy rules. And Hasatan says, well, yeah, of course he is. He's perfectly faithful because you give him everything anyone could ever want and have made his life the best life. He's rich. He's powerful. He has a wonderful family. He's got it made. But if you took that all away, I bet he'd stop being faithful to you. Picking back up in verse 12. God replies, well, we'll see. Go ahead. Do what you want with all of everything that is his. Just don't hurt him. Then Hasatan left the presence of God. Sometime later, while Job's children were having one of their parties at the home of their oldest son, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing in the field next to us when Sabaeans attacked. They stole the animals and killed the field hands. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. While he was still talking, another messenger arrived and said, bolts of lightning struck the sheep and the shepherds and fried them, burned them to a crisp. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. While he was still talking, another messenger arrived and said, Chaldeans coming from three directions raided the camels and massacred the camel drivers. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. While he was still talking, another messenger arrived and said, your children were having a party at the home of your oldest brother. Uh, the home of the oldest brother, your oldest son, when a tornado swept in off the desert and struck the house, it collapsed on the young people and they died. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. Job got to his feet, ripped his robe, shaved his head, and then fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I'll return to the womb of the earth. God gives, God takes, God's name be ever blessed. Not once through all of this did Job sin. Not once did he blame God. That's the end of chapter one. So all this terrible stuff happens to him. His stuff is stolen or killed. His people and family are killed by robbers or by freak accidents of nature. And Job is devastated, but we're told that he stays faithful. Picking up in chapter two at verse one, we're back up in heaven in, in the court The God is holding court again. It says, one day the angels came to report to God. Hasatan also showed up. God singled out Hasatan saying, and what have you been up to? This all sounds familiar. Hasatan answered God, oh, going here and there, you know, checking things out. Then God said to Hasatan, have you noticed my friend Job? There's no one quite like him, is there? Honest and true to his word, devoted to me and hating evil. He still has a firm grip on his integrity. You tried to trick me into destroying him, but it didn't work. Asatan answered, a human would do anything to save his life. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away his health? He'd curse you to your face, that's what. And God again said, all right, go ahead. 
You can do whatever you like with him, but mind you, don't kill him. Hasatan left God and struck Job with terrible sores. Job was ulcers and scabs from head to foot. They itched and oozed so badly that he had to take a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself. Ugh. Then he went and sat on a trash heap among the ashes. His wife said, Still holding on to your precious integrity, are you? Curse God and be done with it. He said to her, You're talking like an empty-headed fool. We take the good days from God. Why not also the bad days? Not once through all this did Job sin. He said nothing against God. So Job's lost everything already, all his livestock, all the people who worked for him, all of his kids. And now he's also incredibly sick and uncomfortable to the point where his wife says to him, this is ridiculous. Like just curse God so that he'll kill you and you can be done with this already. But Job stays faithful. Picking back up, verse 11. Three of Job's friends heard of all the trouble that had fallen on him. Each traveled from his own country. Now I'm going to butcher these names. Eliphaz from Taman, Bildad, which is a bummer from a name, <laughs> from Shua. I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that. And Zophar from Namath. They all went together to Job to keep him company and comfort him. And when they first caught sight of him, they couldn't believe what they saw. They hardly recognized him. They cried out in lament. They ripped their robes and dumped dirt on their heads as a sign of their grief. Then they sat with him on the ground. Seven days and nights they sat there without saying a word. They could see how rotten he felt and how deeply he was suffering. Three of Job's friends show up. And again, these aren't Hebrew people. Um, and their names mean various things. The, the first is uh, his name means my, na my God is gold. And he's from a place that means basically the South. Um, it's interesting to, uh, that when Job was being attacked, it was from three different directions. And then his friends come from the South. Um, another, his second friend, Bildad. <laughs> this is a guy whose name means the contender or the striver. So the guy that has potential to get stuff done. And he's from a place that means wealth. And the final guy is a name means the sparrow. And he's from a place that means pleasantness. So basically, these are the guys that you want showing up when things go wrong. They have money, they have power, they have comfort. They're going to they're gonna show up and help put the pieces back together for their friend. And I think throughout this story, and especially here, we can learn a lot from Job's friends, both what to do and what not to do when it comes to how to approach other people's suffering. They get a bit weird as time goes on and we enter the epic poem and, and get away from the fable. And they start saying things that actually, um, they start saying things that many evangelical Christians uh, still say today when confronted with other people's pain. The things that they start to say in the epic poem are things that I know that I've heard and are things that I have at least thought, if not said out loud to other people who are suffering in the past. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Here in the fable, his friends do exactly what friends should do. They don't write Job a note and say, we're so sorry for your loss. Let us know if you, can, if you need anything or we can do anything, which is something I'm far too guilty of doing. Um, but they don't do that. They don't just send words. They don't keep Job's pain at an arm's length, which is a very normal reaction to pain and suffering um, that we encounter in other people. We try to protect ourselves by staying away from it. But instead, these friends act 
and they move toward Job and his pain. They drop everything that they're doing and they travel to be with their friend who is suffering. And they sit with him in his pain. They don't try to fix it. They don't try to explain it, at least not yet. They simply sit in silence with him for seven days. These are good friends. This is how we should approach pain in other people's lives, showing up to be there for them. We usually don't know what to say because usually there isn't anything to say. And usually people don't need us to say anything. They just need us to be there. So that's the end of the fable of Job, except for the last 10 verses of this book, which is all the way at the end of chapter 42, which we'll get back to. But basically um, it's a short little epilogue about how uh, God restores everything that he took away and gives Job twice as much wealth as before and 10 new kids. Cause we all know that kids are just replaceable, right? I think that's part of how, you know, this is an ancient fable. Anyway, for the rest of our time tonight, um, I want to focus on Job's wife and what she says. After everything has been taken away, after all their animals have been stolen or killed, after their, their employees and servants have been killed, after their children have been taken from them and killed, Job's wife says to him, curse God and die. She says, Job, things are really bad. You might as well curse God so that he'll smite you and put you out of your misery, which probably means smite us and put us out of our misery. She wants Job to say, I've made a huge mistake. She's really saying, what's the point of serving God if this is the result? If we're still going to suffer this deeply and this painfully, what's the point of your faith? What's the point of all those sacrifices you're always making? What's the point of all your piety? What's the point of all of this is if, if this is what you get for it? I think that's a great question for us to wrestle with. If there's no guarantee of success or prosperity or happiness, why do you follow God? Maybe for you, it's not because of any earthly guarantees for you, um, but more about eternal realities. You follow God because you want eternal life and union with God and whatever comes after this. I don't want to discredit that, but to some degree, that, that's still a version of you following God because of what it gets you. So for the sake of this exercise, um, for lack of a better term, take that off the table. Let's say hypothetically that there's just nothing when you die, you cease to exist. That's not a fun thought, I know, but would you still follow God now in this life if that were the case? If loving God and following God doesn't guarantee you any success or any freedom from hardship or suffering, and if it didn't guarantee you any eternal reality, would you still love and follow God? If so, why? And if not, why wouldn't you? Really reflect on this question and answer it honestly. There's no wrong answer per se. Like what we're after is not the right answer. We're after an honest answer here. As we progress through the rest of this series and this book, one of the themes that emerges is that God is not a cosmic vending machine that we have, con that, that we control by our behavior. Where if we put the right change in, we get the right snack out. 
If we do the right things, we get good blessings. And the opposite is also true. If we don't do the right things, if we do bad things, then we get punished. This is a common and, and popular view of God. This is the karma view of God. It ultimately reduces God down to a machine that we control with our input. Good or bad behavior gets blessings or punishments from God, which at the end of the day is all about us feeling some sense of control in the universe. It's all about us being able to explain why bad things happen to good people. Well, why bad things happen. It doesn't help us explain why bad things happen to good people because we assume that if bad things happen, it must mean that we did something wrong, right? This is the assumption of, of Job's wife. This is the assumption that she's operating under. And when it becomes clear that things don't work this way, and when she and Job suffer despite Job's perfect behavior, she wants out. What's the point of, of playing this game if the rules aren't fair? What's the point of good behavior if God's not going to protect us? Or, or eh, what's the point of good behavior if we still get punished anyway? What's the point of living anymore? I totally get where she's coming from. <laughs> if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus and a lover of God, what is your honest and ultimate motivation for those things? What is your honest and ultimate motivation for loving God? This is one question that Job challenges us with. If you want to talk through that sometime, um, I'd love to meet up with you or chat on the phone. Send me an email and let's make it happen because that can be a really hard thing to sift through with yourself. And that's what I want to leave you with tonight. I don't want to answer that question for you. I really want you to sit and think about that question and how it informs our view of who God is. Why do you follow God? Why do you love God? Next week, um, we're going to dip our toes into the beginning of the epic poem section of this book, uh, the rap battles um, that ensue between Job and his friends about who God is and how he operates in the world.